0: You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Good morning, 10 o'clock. Good to see you all. We sure are grateful for and love our moms. In 1661, Matthew Mead, a Puritan, wrote a book called The Almost Christian Discovered. The false professor cast and tried. Sounds like a page-turner, doesn't it? The the word professor there is not speaking of a college professor, but a a false professor, one who falsely professes Christ. Although I am sure there's some college students here this week with finals week approaching that would like to see their professor tried and cast out. (laughs) Meade wrote it to address a significant problem. Many people who think they are saved, but, but they are not. Mead addressed that problem 360 years ago. Paul addresses that situation 2,000 years ago. It's, a, it's something that we need to address today. Because in the Old Testament, when the gospel is presented, it's very often followed by instructions on how to identify a true Christian and how to identify a deceived one. So it's my prayer today that God will use this passage really in two ways. One, to confirm the faith of many today who are in Christ Jesus. But secondly, perhaps this passage today will strip away some false hopes of some who are here today who are almost Christian or an unsaved Christian. Let me define for you what an unsaved Christian is. That's really important we say this at the very beginning. An unsaved Christian is one who is Christian in name and culture but is not a new person in Christ. This person is a self-titled Christian, but they're not a brand new creation in Christ. They call themselves Christians. They they find themselves often in the culture of Christianity. They they go to church. They love to serve. They know the lingo. They love godly people. they're, They're moral. They're patriotic. They read their Bible. They pray. But they're not saved. They know about Jesus but Jesus doesn't know them with your copy of God's Word would you turn with me please to the book of Philippians Philippians chapter 3 I hope you have a copy of God's Word with you if not you can share it with the nice person next to you or go to your device well, let's go to the book of Philippians together the book of Philippians is in the New Testament you've got the Gospels Matthew Mark Luke John then Acts and Romans 1st Corinthians 2nd Corinthians Galatians Ephesians Philippians Let's go to Philippians chapter 3 together. Paul is writing to the church at Philippi. The Holy Spirit is telling Paul what to write. And I say that to you to remind you that this word that is true then is true today. The word that was true for those who lived in Philippi is also true for those who've gathered at Highland today or are watching online today. This is God's truthful word to God's people. Philippians chapter 3 will begin in verse 1. Finally, my brothers or my sisters, my Christian family, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Verse one, finally. It's an old preacher trick to use when you're not really that close to being done, but you say that anyway, just to let people think that you're kind of wrapping up. Paul does the same thing right here. He says, Finally, he's just halfway done with his letter. Maybe just to make sure people are gonna, gonna listen in. So, my my brothers, my sister Christians, rejoice in the lord now you have to remember the context from which paul is writing he's in jail Uh, he is under house arrest in rome under the praetorium guard he can't go anywhere he has lost his freedom and this becomes really the operative word of the book of philippians joy rejoice so just remember he is under lock and key he has lost all of his liberties And he is calling his people, the people of God, his brothers and sisters, to rejoice in the Lord. Then he says, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me. In other words, I'm going to repeat myself on a very important topic. I don't mind saying it again. It's not a trouble to me, but it's good for you, Paul says. It's a safe thing for your soul to hear this one more time. What is the thing he's going to repeat? True salvation. Are you truly saved? Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He is speaking here of of Judaizers. Those that would say, yes, you can be a Christian, but you need to be a Christian plus follow the regulations of the Jewish faith, plus follow the practices of the Jewish faith, plus follow the law of the Jewish faith. Faith. And so what they're saying here is this Jesus plus something will get you saved. And if, in, in case you're close to dozing off in the sermon today and probably aren't going to make it the next 25 minutes or so, but, but let me say this to make sure we're all on the same page. It is Jesus plus nothing that equals our salvation. We don't have to add anything to it. It's Christ and Christ alone, faith in Christ, the grace of Christ. So he's speaking here to these Judaizers and he calls them Dogs. Because Jews believed that dogs were disease-carrying and and dirty. What I feel about cats, the Jews felt about dogs. (laughs) The irony here is that Paul is using this. He's calling the Jews, the the, the Jews called Gentiles dogs. It was a very derogative term. It would be reserved for someone who was not Jewish. Jewish. So Paul turns that word on them and says, no, you need to watch out for these dogs, these, these Judaizers that are trying to tell you it's Jesus plus your self-righteousness, and it's Jesus plus nothing. He calls them evildoers here. They, they, these are people who prided themselves on being righteous. But Paul is turning the table on them. In their self-righteousness, they think they are earning the favor of God, but Paul says, actually, they're doing nothing but, but evil. They are evil. Then he scorches them with this term, they're mutilators of the flesh. Paul is referring to the uselessness of circumcision and salvation. The uselessness of anything for salvation except for the completed work of Christ on the cross. So what is a Christian. I mean, again, I think I said this last week, if you were to ask someone in our nation today, ask someone in our city today, maybe ask people in this place today, what is a Christian? You might get answers like, well, it's one who goes to church. It's one who believes in God. It's someone who acts right. They're they're moral. They they pray. They don't cuss, at least in front of their kids. They vote Republican or they vote Democrat. Here's a great definition of a Christian. We see it in verse three. For we are the circumcision. Paul is talking about the inside work of God the chains on the inside. We are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. This is how Paul, this is how God's Word, this is how the Holy Spirit instructed Paul to write these words down. This is a definition of someone who truly is in Christ. This is the definition of someone who is saved. Let's look at these three things very quickly we see in verse three. Number one, it's one who worships by the Spirit of God. This is the one that loves to praise God, loves to talk to God, places the highest priority and the highest passion on God. They love to meet God in his word. They love to serve God. It it, it demands me to ask this question of you today. Is there something deep within you that longs to worship God, that longs to treasure Christ, that longs to be around Him in His presence, to love Him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? That is evidence of something that's happening on the inside that's coming out on the exterior. They worship by the Spirit of God. What is a true Christian? It's one who glories in Christ Jesus. We see this in verse 3. This is the idea of rejoicing in Christ, boasting in Christ. Well, You glory in Christ if you truly are saved because all the credit belongs to him and to him alone. The name of Jesus must be central in the life of someone who is truly saved. The life of Christ that he came to seek and save the lost The death of Christ, that he died in our place, he died for our sin, the resurrection of Christ, that he conquered his death, he conquered our death, and he is the Lord. This is what it means to glory in Christ Jesus. But today in America, you can be, air quotes, a Christian without needing the work of the cross. But can there be a saving faith apart from the cross of of Jesus Christ. No, there is no saving faith apart from believing in the life of Christ, the death of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. Thirdly, Paul describes a Christian here by saying this person has no confidence in the flesh. Like there's no self-righteousness whatsoever. Really, the word here is humility. That is the attitude of a genuine believer in Christ. Why would a genuine believer in Christ have humility? They're humbled by their own fallen condition of their own flesh. We don't trust our own flesh. We don't revel or rejoice in what we can do. Instead, one who is in Christ has no confidence in the flesh, meaning they are humbled that God would even think about saving someone like us. There's a distinct contrast. I bet you picked it up between verse 2 and verse 3. In verse 2, it's the people who profess to be Christian or profess to have new life then in verse 3 we see those who are new creations in Christ those who profess Christianity and those who are new creations in Christ remember last week when Jesus was preaching in Matthew chapter 7 he said and on that day many operative word many will come to me and say Lord Lord look at all these great things that we have done for your name and for the kingdom and Jesus will announce to them depart For me, I never knew you. It's Billy Graham who says, we're going to be surprised who is in heaven and who's not in heaven. Then we see in verse 2, those who are religious by by what they do. Then we see in verse 3, those who are righteous because they have received what Christ has already done. You see, that's the main difference between a religious person who is not saved and someone who has a relationship with God through Christ Jesus. One who is simply religious tries and tries and tries harder every week, every Sunday. I've got to do this. I've got to do this. I can't be still. I can't rest because there's still things I need to do to be saved. But someone who has a relationship with God through Christ Jesus, do you know what they do? They rest. They rest in the completed work of Christ on the cross. This is why Jesus cried out, It is finished. Like our debt has been paid. There is no work we can do to add to the completion of what Christ has already accomplished for us. Then you see those with an outward mark. That's that circumcision we we read about or alluded to in verse 2. But then Paul talks about this inward change. He's talking about this inward circumcision, if you will. There's a change to the heart, not to the outside, but to the inside. I mean, every system of religion today, whether it be Jehovah's Witness or Mormons or Christian scientists or Catholics or Muslims or Baptists who try to do fewer bad works and more good works and hopefully somehow win the favor of God, that is a false religious system. And it does not lead to new life, nor does it lead to heaven verse 4 though I myself I have reason for confidence in the flesh so so Paul is about to talk about his own life if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh I have more if anyone could brag it's Paul this is some Greek trash talking right here little little smack (laughs) I've got self righteousness yes I do I have self righteousness what about you These five things that Paul's about to lay out for us, things that are really good that he could boast about, that he could lean upon spiritually. Five things. Let's read them, verse 5 and verse 6. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. Verse 6, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul lists five good things right here that are still less than Jesus. First of all, he lists good family heritage. You might want to write these five things down. These are good things. Good family heritage. We see this in verse five. He was circumcised on the eighth day, which means he came from a devout, strong Jewish family. He said he's of the people of Israel. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He is a Hebrew of Israel. Hebrews. He spoke Hebrew. He read Hebrew. He understood Hebrew. That's what he means when he says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. What he's saying is you can't get more Jewish than me. He knew his family heritage. He came from a committed family. That that may be true of many of you here. You come from a good family, good parents, a stable home, an emotionally healthy home. Paul says, I had good family heritage. It is a good thing that I could boast about. Secondly, he talks about his strong social status because he's of the elite tribe. You see this in verse five, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the only one born of Jacob and Rachel in the promised land. In fact, he was born in a little town you're probably familiar with called Bethlehem. Uh, he was the only one born in the promised land. He, he was part of the tribe that stayed faithful to King David. In fact, when Benjamin was born of Jacob and Rachel, Rachel had so many problems in her pregnancy that when Benjamin was born, she told Jacob, let's name him ben o and In Hebrew means son of my sorrow or sorry son. Jacob, fortunately, stood up to the plate and said, we're not naming our son sorry son. We're going to name him Ben-Yamin which means the son of my right arm or the son of my right hand, a place of of authority, a place of position. Ever since then, the the tribe of Benjamin has been an elite tribe all throughout the Old Testament, even here in the New Testament. All the other tribes disappeared. Remember the 10 lost tribes of the north? There were two tribes that remained, the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. The land of Benjamin is where Jerusalem would be founded. The, The land of Benjamin would be where the temple was located. You remember the story of of Ehud in in the Old Testament? The guy that that ran the sword through Eglon, the the, the Jabba, the hut of the Old Testament, just ran a sword right through his fat belly. I mean, Ehud was a left-handed accountant. No one ever thought that he'd be a warrior. He was from the tribe Benjamin. In fact, you can go through even now. Um, um, Ehud Olmert it has been the prime minister of, of Israel, named after Ehud, this Benjaminite hero of, of the Old Testament. Saul, remember Saul was the very first king of Israel, the beloved and the feared, the powerful, the warrior Saul. Guess what tribe he came from? The tribe of Benjamin. Paul's name before it was Paul was Saul. I have no doubt in my mind whatsoever that Paul was named for King David, King Saul, the Benjaminite. So we see this, this guy has status. He has credibility. It'd be like he was born into, into the Bush family here in Texas, or, or born into, his last name was Musk, or his dad was Clark Kent. Like he would just have this incredible, strong social status. But he also had biblical knowledge. We see this in verse five. As to the law, he says, I'm a Pharisee. He would know the Old Testament. Paul would know the Old Testament better than anybody in this room and probably everybody in this room put together. He started learning scripture as a four-year-old. As a 12-year-old, he was given a a, a scholar mentor. We even know his name, Gamaliel, who is a wise, learned one from, from the Jewish faith. He would have memorized the first five books of the Bible by the time he was 16 years old. Can you imagine being 16 years old and having Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy hidden in your heart? You had it by memory. He had great biblical knowledge. So here's a guy who says, I have good family heritage. I have strong social status. I have biblical knowledge. Fourthly, religious activity. Oh, I was active in my religion. He was a zealous member of Judaism. He was the leader of those that were, he was killing the the Christians because he felt like that Christian sect, that brand new branch, was turning against Judaism. In fact, the first martyr, Stephen, when he was killed, guess who was there giving nodding approval? Paul. He was very active religiously. Fifthly, high moral lifestyle. We see this in verse six. He said, I followed the rules. As to righteousness under the law, I'm blameless. I did everything right. Good family heritage, strong social status, biblical knowledge, religious activity, high moral lifestyle. Look at the screen. Look at those five things. Every one of those things is so good. So very good. It's often not the bad things that keep us from Jesus. Paul is telling us right here, it's possible to love your family, to be involved in church, to know your Bible, to have a good reputation, to do the right things and come to the end of your life and still have written over you unsaved because you never knew Jesus. It is possible to have all of those things and still go to hell. Politically incorrect, I know, but it is biblically correct. So what is the way to new life? What is the way to rescue? What is the way to becoming a new creation in Christ? Now listen to the passion of Paul, beginning in verse 7. Let's read the next little section of this in Philippians chapter 3. But whatever gain I had, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, what gain did he have? Good family heritage, strong social status, biblical knowledge, religious activity, high moral lifestyle. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing, operative word, knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all these things. I count them as trash. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The only thing that saves is believing on Jesus, knowing Jesus. Giving Jesus your sin and taking from him his right standing with God. Here's what you can write down somewhere. The only treasure in this life that counts is Jesus. Everything else Paul says here is rubbish. In fact, that Greek word for rubbish is the Greek word skubalon. And I can't even tell you exactly what it means, but it means means a dirty diaper. It means feces. It's the most vile word Paul ever used in any of his letters. He says, it's nothing to me. All these things are trash to me. I just want to know Christ. So the only treasure in this life, and I might add in the life to come, that counts is Jesus. Have you noticed in the Gospels that the closer that Jesus came to his cross, the crowds got thinner and thinner. When he was handing out free food and making it in front of their very eyes, oh man, people loved that. Food and magic all at the same time. And then he, when he was healing people who were blind, I mean, people by the hundreds were following him. Let's see what trick he does next. Uh, maybe he'll make this blind person see, and, and, and he did. Maybe he'll make this lame person walk, and they did, and the crowds roared with approval, roared with applause. But then he starts saying things like, if you're gonna follow me, you're gonna to have to pick up an instrument of death, the cross, and deny yourself. And follow in the same steps that I'm walking. And the crowd began to thin out. And then he said, I will be hated by this world. And if you follow me, you'll be hated by this world as well. And the crowds got smaller and smaller to where once he was hanging naked on a cross, there was just a few. The closer we get to the cross of Christ, the more Matthew chapter seven begins to make sense that we looked at last week. Narrow is the way that leads to life and it's difficult and few find it. And then Jesus says, but wide is the road to destruction and it's easy and many find it. Then using that same word, Jesus said, and on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, look at all the things that I have done. And then Jesus will say, you're gonna have to get away from me, depart from me, I never knew you. Would you, as much reverence as you can, stand with me, please? crowds got smaller and smaller when they realized what it truly meant to be a disciple of Christ. That it wasn't about self-righteousness or having a good background or just having knowledge or enjoying the the great things that Christ can do. The crowds got thinner when they realized what it's going to cost them to follow him. Most Americans are going to miss heaven by about 18 inches the difference between head knowledge and receiving fully this gospel of christ that says we can't and he's done everything most in our nation probably most in this city have information about christ maybe many in this room information about christ moral want to do right do well i mean you're in church today But you're not a new creation in Christ. Many in our nation know about God. They're going to miss the kingdom of God because they know about him but never put their life into the life of Christ. His life, is death, his resurrection. One of the saddest reasons people will not be in heaven is pride. One of the number one reasons people will enter into a place of darkness and gnashing of teeth and fire isn't because they were violent, it's because they were prideful. And they refused to submit their lives to Christ. So the invitation today is to lay down your pride and to come to Jesus. This invitation today is for people who've been in church for 30 years plus. This invitation today is for deacons and staff members and those who think that somehow we can earn our way toward God by having a good background and being moral and having biblical knowledge and being active in our religion. This morning at 8.40, many came forward and, and talked to someone here at the front. I want to know Christ. I've been in church a long time. I want to know Christ. I've got knowledge, but I want to know Christ. So if I've asked you today to stand here at the front to receive those who would want to come forward, if you don't mind coming forward at this time, I'll be standing here on the floor as well. Don't let the pride of what someone might think about you by moving and talking to someone at the front prevent you from the kingdom of God. Don't let the pride of having to awkwardly crawl over chairs and tap 10 people in the back. I, I need to get out. I need to go talk to someone about being a new creation in Christ. Do not let pride be the reason you do not enter under that narrow road. But oh, before you come, count the cost. Jesus is asking you to follow him in his power and in his suffering. We're going to sing Don't Miss Knowing Jesus. Won't you please